Our passage this morning is Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day unto now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me is to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your marvelous grace to us, your love to us, that you have begun a good work in us and that you will, you will perform it, that you will complete it to the day of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for that, Father. We, we know our hearts are evil and sinful, but yet you and your grace have loved us and that you've drawn us to yourself and that you will bring us to yourself to live with you forever and ever. For that, we thank you. Father, we pray now for Philip. We ask that you would speak through him, that your Holy Spirit would guide and lead him. And Father, we pray for our hearts, that you would open our hearts to receive your word and that we would be obedient to it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Paul. I want to start with an illustration that I think helps us to understand a little bit of what's going on here in Philippians 1 regarding feelings. And I just want to have you think for a second with me. Have you ever been in a situation where you know you should feel a certain way, but you can't or you don't? Maybe you should not be laughing in the middle of a sermon or when it's a very serious moment, but you can't stop having that kind of feeling. Maybe it's you know you should be happy and rejoicing with a friend, but you just can't because of circumstances. Maybe you should feel disgusted at something or angry at something, but you just can't muster up that feeling. That happened to me several years ago, right after my daughter, Selah, was born. Um, Selah is now almost seven. And uh, when she was born, uh, I realized I was a very light sleeper. Hezekiah wasn't as bad of a sleeper as she was for sure. She was a pretty bad sleeper. And so we live in a small house on Wista Vista that Esther now lives in. And the walls are pretty thin, much thinner than they are now at my house. And I would stay up late. So because of that, I slept on the back porch. And it was November, but I got great sleep. I know some of you guys like to sleep in the cold, right? I got great sleep. Now, there was one night, though, that I was very tired, and so was my wife. And some of you who have been parents can identify with this, just exhausted. And so she was frustrated and needed help with Selah. Now, the thing you got to know about Selah at that point in her life, she didn't really like me. And so I had her outside. Uh, it was November, but it was actually a relatively nice time. I, it was safe for the baby. We were out there together, me and Selah, on this futon that we bought. And it just so happened that in the middle of the night, she peed through her diaper. But at that point, I knew I was supposed to feel like disgust or something. I was just so tired that I could not muster the strength to get out of bed and do something about it. So I put her to the other side, laid back, and fell asleep. Knowing I should feel differently than I do, but I, I couldn't. Well, a funny thing happened on that side. She threw up a little bit. And then some more. And then some more. And I think you probably know where this is going. I knew I should feel gross about this. On one side of me, pee. On the other side, spit up from a baby. But I could do nothing but put her on my chest. <laughs> feel exhausted. <laughs> a little discouraged. And go back to sleep. 
I knew at that point that I should feel disgusted by what was going on. I just couldn't muster up that feeling. I think today, in a much more serious note, right, as we look at the book of Philippians in our life, I think it's similar for us. Oftentimes, we get in a discouraged state, and we know we're supposed to be joyful. In fact, Paul even commands them to be joyful many times in this book, but we can't muster up the feeling of joy. And I want to examine that today, what the foundation of it is, um, and, and just as a reminder too, our uh, text here, uh, there's, a, there's a catchy phrase here that I'm going to have every time. And I have an audience request. Will asked me to do the little motions <laughs> that I did for middle school. So it's a little embarrassing and humbling, but hey, it's the book of Philippians, right? So the first one that we did for middle school, um, joy from progress. So joy from progress. It's just joy from progress as you walk. So joy from progress is the first catchphrase. And then there are a couple others we'll touch uh, uh, other weeks, but unity from humility in Christ above all. And I'll try to maybe do those uh, motions for you. Maybe it's helpful, maybe not, but I know it has been for me. I still remember them uh, a couple years later. Uh, I also want to remind you where we're at in the book. I think the subject of Philippians, in other words, what he's trying to get across is how can that church, the entire church, you notice in chapter 1 he says, with the overseers and deacons, how can they stand firm? In chapter 1, what we're going to study today and look at in God's Word that we just read is how the Philippians would stand firm. That was if they rejoiced in the advance of the gospel no matter what. And we're going to tackle all of chapter 1 this morning. And so, how do we get to the point, again, where our joy is directly connected to the advancement of the gospel no matter what? And what does the advancement of the gospel even mean? And then what are the pitfalls and hindrances to joy, to our participation like the Philippians? They were partners in the gospel. That's what we're going to look at today. And the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul outlines that. And then the first point then, so in chapter 1, really 1 through 11, focusing on 9 through 11 is, in order to rejoice in the advance of the gospel, the Philippians had to be able to approve what is best. They had to be able to approve what is best. And they had been doing this. And this is what Paul begins in his letter to them. It's really a thank letter. He's saying thank you for participation in the gospel. They had been doing that. They had been rejoicing from the first day until now, he says. They were partners in the gospel. And I think a big part of that for them was giving financially. Their joy at the beginning overflowed in their generosity. There are at least five times in the scriptures, he mentions three of them in Philippians, that they gave generously. Even at Thessalonica, he says, that was a difficult situation. You'll get there in Acts. But they immediately, because of their salvation, gave financially to Paul. And that produced joy in them. It's important to note, and we'll, we'll cover kind of the pitfalls later, why that's so important. But I wouldn't go so far to say that this church was one of his sending churches. That's a great model for us as a church, man, to support those who are doing the work of the gospel and be joyful in that. This is one of the foundational texts for how to do that well as a local church. They supported the man who preached the gospel to them. Pretty cool. And that was evident as a result of their salvation because they were able to approve what is best. They knew that this is the best thing, that Christ is exalted everywhere. And so they partnered with him financially in that. I want to bring your attention to verse 7 for a second before we get into those three verses that really talk about approving what is best. It's a strange and cool way to talk about grace. 
You know, when we think of God's grace, we really think about the blessing of God, I think most times, right? Like, oh, I got a new car, or God has really helped my family, or, or given me a new job. What does he say here? You became partakers with me. You all became partakers with me of grace. Oh, okay, Paul's going to say like, oh, the good things. No, he says what? Both in my imprisonment. Wow, what a, what a shift in approving what is best. Do you see that connection? Paul is basically saying it was gracious of God. It was the best plan that I go to prison. And see, I think he's connecting for them their experience because you know what? How did they get saved? You remember in Acts 16, he was in prison, an earthquake happened, and they were saved as a result of God delivering him. He's connecting that for them. He's like, look, now I'm in prison again, and people are getting saved, and this is a gracious thing of God to do in our lives. It's that approving what is best, that mindset that says, hey, you know what? What is best is the advancement of the gospel. That is a gracious thing of God to do what he's done to me and in your lives as well. But I want to drill down now on verses 9 through 11, kind of make a connection, I think, in the text that's really important to the rest of the book of Philippians, especially chapter 1. You can look there at what it says, and this is kind of a summary statement, doing some things more literally than you might have in your translation. This is the way I read this now. If you have knowledgeable love, a love that's knowledgeable, if you have discerning love, you will be able to prove by testing what is worth the most with the result that you're pure and with the result that you are blameless. And we'll see later with the result that you're able to rejoice. It's not what is excellent. I think really the the force of this is not what is excellent. You might think when we think about excellence, there are many things in life that are excellent, right? Getting married, that's a good thing. Raising kids, in a godly way. That's a great thing. That's an excellent thing. You know, being able to participate financially in the local body, that's a great thing, but they're not the best. And that's where his force at. He's driving at, hey, you need to approve. You need to prove through testing what is actually best. And when you get to chapter three, when we get there, he's going to point that out. He's saying there's only one thing that's best, and that is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So he says, you know what, you need, to, you need to reorient your perspectives, right? So that you can have joy, so that when you look at trials, circumstances that are difficult, you can say, this is best if the gospel is advancing. Does that make sense? In other words, get God's glasses on here. Look at life through his perspective. Approve what is best. There's only one thing, and that's the exaltation of Jesus Christ. In other words, that he's made much of that Jesus is made much of far and wide. In your lives, in the lives of people all around the world, whether it's in prison with Paul or at your school or at your work or at CBC, what's best is that Jesus Christ is exalted. And that's what he tells the Philippians. He says, look at it that way. And I think important note here is a knowledgeable love, a love that knows Jesus well, and a discerning love, a love that doesn't just go out and latch on to anything are important for this kind of relationship, for this kind of um, exalting in Christ, this kind of proving and testing. In other words, if you approve of the wrong thing, you're not going to exalt Jesus. If your love is in the wrong place, you will not exalt Jesus Christ. You know, I love, uh, one of the things 
I love about my job when I usually work with the youth upstairs is that I get to see this, this kind of process here in action. And I'm not saying you adults don't get to see that, but, you know, it's a little harder to see growth in an adult. It's easier when a person is a teenager <laughs> to see a snap transition. And it's cool this summer I got to really see that with the youth. You know, many of you who have heard of what's going on, I'll just rehash a little bit. We had 10 people trust Christ at VBS. We had at least two trust Christ for the first time at youth camp. It's just amazing, right? And, and two of those guys that trusted Christ, they have gone through this process. They look, I, I'm going to just say their names um, because I think it's important that, you know, Caleb Wooten and Jonathan Simon. I mean, almost overnight, they were able to do this. Their desires shifted. Their love shifted. And they then approved what is best. In other words, instead of playing video games all day, <laughs> they started coming and helping and asking different questions about life, making different decisions. Jonathan even moved like an hour away out of his house so that he could be away from a situation that was not good for his faith. Now he's living with the clouds. That is a great example of what Paul is challenging us with here. Do you approve what is best? Do you live out of that paradigm that Jesus Christ being exalted is the only thing worth pursuing in your life? That must be the foundation in order for us to have joy, to rejoice in the advance of the gospel. We have to see that Jesus being believed on more and more, and maybe even for the first time in missions work as well, is what is best. That's what is best. That's what he's talking about. How will this change happen? Think very clearly here. Verse 6 and 11. This change, this ability to approve through the right kind of love, what is best comes by God's work in your heart. Not by stirring up some desire of yours. We'll talk about this later. Joy is a funny thing. You can't really have it just by trying to pursue it. God has to create that in you. The same thing here. If you look at verse 6, God is going to complete the work that he began. That's such an encouraging thing to me when I don't have joy, when I'm struggling. That You know what? Lord, you're going to do this. You're going to do it, not me. You're going to make me love Jesus more. You're going to have him exalted, sometimes despite myself, in my life. And I know that's true in yours as well. Verse 11 as well. This fruit comes through Christ. It says the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. I love the story of John Mark in the Scriptures. I feel a little bit of that in my life growing up in a church, abandoning Christ, probably not even being a believer and coming back and by God's grace being useful in whatever way I am. John Mark was with Paul on his first missionary trip. And before they even really started, he was out. <laughs> he abandoned the ministry. And actually that caused a division between some people. But you know what Paul says? So this dude who abandoned him in the mission field, Paul's like, I don't want anything. I'm going to separate from him, let him go his own way. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, at the end of Paul's life, such a wonderful thing he says, when he's dying, when he's cold, when he's in his lowest place, who does he ask for? John Mark. You know what? Bring John Mark with you. He is very useful to me. I love that. God will complete that work in you. He will exalt Christ in your life. He will complete the work he began. We don't need to be afraid of that. We're sure of that. It's a promise we can count on. But I want to challenge us this week in light of this approving what is best to check your loves. Where, where are your desires? Do you have a knowledgeable and discerning love? 
that is fixed on Christ. That is fixed on the best one, the only one worthy of all you have. This week, if you find yourself not able to rejoice, it might be because this is not your heart's affection. That Christ is not all he should be in your heart and mind. That is, a, that is a stopper for rejoicing in the advance of the gospel. If you have any other desire, any other love that has taken his place in your heart and mind. So if you can't rejoice, maybe there's a disorder of purpose. Remember Jesus said to seek what first? God's kingdom. And all these other things will be added unto you. There's a cool story that Carrie shared with me this week at our preaching breakfast. There was a guy who used to be more closely associated with our church and he was going to be hired for, to teach Greek mythology at a university in California, okay? And so he's, he's pretty clearly going to be hired, and he sits down with the hiring um, department. I don't know who was doing it. And they had a conversation, and it went like this, as far as I'm told. This guy said, hey, you can hire me, but I'm, I'm going, since I'm teaching Greek mythology, I'm going to talk about Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you the truth, <laughs> and the students the truth. I'm not going to compromise on that. And so you can hire me. But know that I will do that. And they're like, well, you know, we, we just really don't want you doing that. He's like, look, you don't, you don't have to hire me. But if you hire me, I'm going to exalt Jesus. I'm going to tell people about him. And you know what? Apparently, they hired him. <laughs> and he told them about Jesus. And I don't, I don't think he got fired. <laughs> you know, he, he went into that. In other words, he went into that right with the right priority. With approving what is best above all other things, even work. You know, this is a challenge to all of us, myself included. And this might seem far-fetched. My wife said it might be, but really it's because we don't examine it. So try it on for size. If you're going to get a new car, is it good for the gospel? Will it orient your heart rightly? If you're going to start a new relationship, if you're going to start a new show, if you're going to get a new job, is it good for the gospel? You're going to play sports on a team? Is it good for the gospel? Is it approving what is best? I think that is where Paul is challenging them and us to be. And so if we're rightly oriented, in other words, if Jesus Christ is the affection of our heart and we are able to approve what is best, we're going to be able to rejoice in the advance of the gospel. Then what, is, what do those phrases mean? What, are those, what is rejoicing in the advance of the gospel? That's a, a little bit of a mouthful. So I'm going to break this down in three ways. I'm going to break it down what joy is. I'm going to talk about the advance of the gospel. And I'm going to talk about kind of the no matter what part of that that Paul is talking to us about in the Philippian church. Let's start with joy. Joy is an interesting thing. <laughs> Hard to define in many ways. But in the book of Philippians, it's used 16 times in four chapters. That should tell us, number one, it's important. And, it, and then I think the way in which he uses it will show us that it's important to the Christian life. I'm going to go through a few references here uh, so that you can see. I'm not just throwing this out. So 1-4, I think, is the first use of joy in the book. And it's produced by the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. 118, the verb is used first here. It's produced by Christ being proclaimed. He says, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Or, I am rejoicing. Second half of that verse, another use. And he says, this one, I'm going to rejoice. Honestly, because of the gospel being proclaimed 
there as well. 125, joy in the faith. And I would take that to be a synonym here in Philippians 2, the advancement of the gospel. More people believing. Joy because people believe. 217, produced by the growth of the Philippians' faith. 218, produced by the growth of the Philippians' faith, despite or in the face of Paul being poured out. I'm going to skip a few and just give you some more. 4-1, 4-4, and 4-10 as well. He talks about the Philippians being his joy and crown. How is, that, how is that connected to the advance of the gospel? Well, they believed. He is joyful because Christ did a work to save them, the advance of the gospel. And I think all those things lead me to believe and to present what I have. Joy is directly connected to the advance of the gospel in Philippians and throughout the New Testament. I also want to note that in Psalm 1611, here's some good joy theology. In your presence is what? Fullness of joy. Fullness of joy with the Lord. Seeing his purposes accomplished is fullness of joy. So joy here is something. In Galatians 5, we have the fruit of the Spirit. One of them is joy. Joy is produced by the Holy Spirit forming in us a feeling that comes when the gospel is advanced. Joy and faith are so similar in the scriptures. You know, it's kind of like this. I'm going to have you maybe hopefully finish these words so that you can understand just how closely I think in Paul's mind faith and joy are. I'm going to say one. and You can say it out loud or not. That's fine. But let's try it. Peanut butter and jelly. Thank you. <laughs> not like the youth. They'd say dog or something silly like that just to frustrate me. Husband and wife. Joy and faith. Faith and joy. Yeah, I want you to connect them. I want you to see that. Joy and faith. Faith in God's purpose is being accomplished in the gospel advancing. They're so close in the scriptures. And you can go examine that. Don't take my word. Go to the scriptures and look up the uses of joy in the New Testament. Now I think I want to stop for a second and talk about, answer this question. Why is joy so important to the Christian life? Why is it so important? And I want to start by reiterating what I said. Greg Watson said this at our preaching breakfast. Joy is something you cannot get by pursuing joy itself. I just want to read to you a couple of quotes. Uh, C.S. Lewis and then John Piper. C.S. Lewis talked about joy as an unsatisfied desire. Interesting. Pointing us to all that God is. Joy must be sharply distinguished from happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, he says, has indeed one characteristic and only one in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange joy for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. This is John Piper. Christian joy is a good feeling. By that, I mean it is not an idea. It is a conviction. It is, sorry, it is not a conviction. It is not a persuasion or a decision. It is a feeling. Or, I use the words interchangeably here, an emotion. One of the marks of the difference between an idea and an emotion or feeling is that you don't have immediate control over your feelings or emotions. You can't snap your fingers and decide to feel something. We rejoice in what we love and desire. That was foundational before. 
And we can't help but overflow with joy in the things that we love. And, and that helps us understand joy. Think about kids. And I, again, I'll use one of my kids in a good way, I think. Moses is a boy, a wonderful young boy, full of emotion. I see someone smiling up there who watches him often. Man, when he is sad, he is sad. When he is angry, he is angry. <laughs> but you know what? When he is joyful, man, he is full of joy. I love when I get home um, from working or I'm out. And he greets me at the door. He just runs up and he's like, Dad, look what I made. He's into Legos right now. I know some of your kids are too. And he brings me his so-called creations. But he loves to build. And that overflows in his rejoicing. And he wants to share that with everyone around him. It's that feeling it gets when he's just so excited about what he has done. Tim Keller says, in a similar way, joy is delight in God and in his salvation for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. And I think it works like this. I, this is just, you know what? God did it again. And when you look at last night, three girls were baptized. God did it again. God saved someone out of an addiction. God did it again. You know, that feeling we get when Man, we just can't help. God did it again. He, that's what he's like. The joy that overflows, that feeling that comes from God saving and redeeming and the gospel going out far and wide. God did it again. That's joy. It's saying, look at God. Isn't he wonderful? Look what he's done. No, I don't think Paul is saying to you here, if you don't have joy, that you're not a believer. I think that's maybe one of the temptations. Well, am I a believer if I don't have this kind of... no. I just think our priorities might be in the wrong thing. We don't have our eyes up. And this is why, this is why, in my mind, joy is so important. Because it is a reflection in our hearts of what really is worth a lot to us. Joy is so important to the Christian because it tells other people, I love Jesus. He's worth a lot to me. So if we don't have joy... It might be because Jesus isn't worth what he actually is in our hearts. Joy comes from that, that exaltation of Christ, seeing him and delighting in him and the overflow, the feeling that we just are so excited about what he's doing in the advance of the gospel. Now, what is the advance of the gospel? This one's a little simpler. In 1.12, it is the whole imperial guard hearing the gospel. Probably what Paul is trying to communicate here is that, you know what? <laughs> I couldn't have shared the gospel with these people that are like presidential bodyguards in some regard if I wasn't in prison with them. <laughs> They've heard. There was no other way. They've heard. So that's the advance of the gospel. In 114, people are preaching boldly, and he's happy about it, and that's the advance of the gospel. The gospel is being proclaimed even by people with bad motives in 118. That's interesting. He's like, you know what? I don't care what they say about me. <laughs> the gospel is being heard. And I think it's a true gospel. I don't think Paul, I don't think we can rejoice when people aren't really exalting Christ. But if they are, even with bad motives, that is the advance of the gospel. I think that can bring us joy. In 120, I think Paul not being ashamed is the advance of the gospel. And this is an interesting way to talk about that. But you know what? I think that's what's going on. You know, Paul, most of us know what shame is, right? If we make a mistake, if I get my words messed up here and I turn red, okay, I'm ashamed, right? Because I really value, sadly, sometimes more than I should, other people's opinions, 
But he doesn't start that way. He says, you know what? I would be ashamed if Christ was not exalted in my body. If I failed to preach the gospel because of physical harm or my situation, that would be a failure. That would be shame. If Christ is not made much of, I would be ashamed. I think that's the advance of the gospel, having that attitude in us. And then in 125, I think it's kind of a summary statement. Look, if the Philippian believers are encouraged and strengthened through this whole ordeal, this is the advance of the gospel. So to put it simply, when people know Christ more and more people know about Jesus Christ, that's the advance of the gospel. To put it in more Christianese terms, it's discipleship and evangelism, if you want to separate them that way. It's the the broad scattering of the seed, and it's the growth of Christ in your heart to love him more. And Paul says, you know what? When those things are happening, I have joy. And then, what does it mean to say, no matter what, right? I think it's pretty clear here, despite opposition from the culture, you've experienced that, I'm sure. It's pretty clear now that the lines are becoming less fuzzy between believers and unbelievers. The truth is shining brightly, I think we see the fruit of that here at CBC as well. So despite opposition from the culture and authorities, that's the no matter what. Despite opposition from so-called believers but with bad motives, maybe they are believers, maybe they just don't like you. (laughs) That happens. Despite that, despite the suffering and loss, it will inevitably cause all of us. No matter that, we should rejoice. 2 Timothy 3, a great verse, says, Indeed, In that chapter, I don't remember the exact verse, but indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. It's not one you and I maybe like to claim, (laughs) but it's a good promise. Certainly prosperity gospel preachers don't like to claim that one, but it is a promise of God. That's the no matter what. Despite it costing you and me emotionally, financially, physically, maybe in our bodies, think about it. If you're up late talking with someone who needs help, discipling them in the Lord, encouraging them. That's going to cost you. You can only go so long late nights. But that's a no matter what of the gospel. It's one of those things that happens when we are purposeful about preaching the gospel. Young families, older people who are, don't have the level of um, zeal or energy that you had at one point, you know what? That is a cost to the gospel, being tired physically as a result, let alone what Paul was experiencing, chains and not being able to leave a room, basically, or his Roman guard. You know, when I think about this, actually, Sharon Overy gave me a a great um, heads-up on a video here that kind of encapsulates what I think Paul is saying about a Chinese believer named Sister Tong. If we could hit the lights, and it's a short clip. You know, when you ask me about persecuted Christians, one of the first people that comes to my mind is a Chinese lady named Sister Tong. I met Sister Tong about six weeks after she'd been released from prison, where she had been for six months because she hosted a house church meeting in her home. One of the first questions I asked Sister Tong was, Sister Tong, tell me about the prison. And what I'm thinking as an American Christian is, you know, tell me how hard the bed was. Tell me how big the rats were. Tell me how miserable it was in that prison cell. My translator translated my question and Sister Tong got what I can only call a heavenly smile on her face. She said something in Chinese and my translator said, oh yes, that was a wonderful time. And I looked at the translator because I thought there is no way 
that he translated my question correctly because I asked about prison and Sister Tong thought that was a wonderful time. There must have been a disconnect. But the translator assured me, no, no, I, I asked the right question and I translated the answer correctly. And Sister Tong went on to say that during that six months in prison, Christ had been so close to her. He had ministered to her in such a personal way. And she also said, you know, there were some other ladies in my prison cell and they didn't know Christ when I got to prison, but they do know Christ now. It's cool, yeah, praise God. That's Voice of the Martyrs YouTube video there. That, that's, that encapsulates it. You know, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, we can rejoice because we know God is going to advance the gospel and exalt Jesus Christ. And the reality is, and I'm borrowing this phrase from a guy named Greg Herrick, the gospel is unconquerable. The gospel is not going to be stopped. The gates of hell, the attacks, that symbol is an army going out, Jesus said, will not prevail against my church. It is unconquerable. Prison couldn't stop it. American culture won't stop it, but there are hindrances to your participation in it, and specifically your joy and my joy in it. What are those? Well, this is what I think Paul tackles in the last three verses of chapter one, uh, four, actually. What are the hindrances? Or another way to put it is, what kills joy for you and I? living the Christian life? What are some joy killers? What are those hindrances in your life and mine? Well, I think we can look here. The very first thing he says in 27, he says, you know what? I want you, I want to hear that you're unified. Why would he say that? Well, because they might not be unified. (laughs) He says, I want to hear that you are unified. So a discouraging life, a life that's not worthy of the gospel, in other words, from 27, is one that is lived in light of discouragement and disunified. Think about it this way. Will Heron, using you well, uh, we were discussing this at the dinner table the other day. I think it was on Friday. He says, you know what? That makes sense because that happened to me at work this week. Discouragement turned into disunity and fighting among his coworkers. What happened was, well, correct me if I'm wrong later, <laughs> Um, the foreman in charge of their job, he's an electrician, quit. The guy who was most experienced left. And then the guy that was now in charge of that was not totally qualified to do it. He was a Germany man after 12 years, so he was not really in a great place to run it. He knew what he was doing, but not at the project management level. There was extra pressure because they're behind already. And then I guess they might have found out too that they had to work on Saturday <laughs> without overtime pay because they were off on Monday. <laughs> you know what? That discouragement turned into fighting at work. Discouragement from circumstances caused disunity and just ruined joy. Can you, I mean, I'm sure you've been like, had an experience like that at work or in your family, right? Discouragement turns into disunity because of our circumstances and that will crush our joy in the Lord. Don't be divided. Don't be divided by discouragement. Trust the Lord. Know that he is advancing the gospel no matter what. The second one I see in verse 28 is fear. Fear. And I got to say, weirdly, I see this one so much in American culture. And it's a weird kind of fear. Let me, let me read to you a little bit from an article about G.K. Chesterton, which quotes him and um, also has some good stuff to say. 
says, G.K. Chesterton, writing on fear, said, not merely by setting up false gods, but also by setting up false devils, by making men afraid of war or alcohol or economic law when they should be afraid of spiritual corruption and cowardice. We live in a society where we're afraid to do things for ourselves, afraid of normal things like marriage and babies, afraid of strangers who can't possibly be any stranger than we are, afraid of salvation, as Chesterton says, the grand old defiers of God. We're not afraid of an eternity of torment. We have come to be afraid of an eternity of joy. We're not afraid of death. We seem to be afraid of life, especially the fullness of life that comes from Christ. And sadly, I know that's true too much in my life. I'm afraid of what will happen to me here rather than the reward seeking Christ in eternity. There's a great podcast out there by just thinking about fear and anxiety. It's the acceptable sin. We even say things like, I'm afraid for you. And you know what? I'm worried about you. The Bible says, do not be worried about anything. Do not be afraid. It's a command. And so already we can see that fear, living in in a place of discouragement that is full of fear, is disobedience. You know what? That just absolutely crushes your joy. Living in a place of fear about living for Christ will crush your joy, period. You won't have it. It'll rob it from you. I think that's why Paul says, you know what? Don't be afraid of your opponents. Don't be afraid of what they can do to you. God will advance the gospel. And then finally, giving up. You give up on ministry. You abandon what God has called you to do, what he's prompting in your heart by the Holy Spirit to do. You say no to that, joy will leave you instantly. And that's what he says to them. You know what? And I I get this from where it says in 29 and 30. It says, engaged in the conflict. You can't be engaged in the conflict if you've given up, right? If you've left the front lines of battle and you're walking home, you're no longer fighting. Don't give up saying, don't give up. Remember 2 Timothy 3. Remember that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Don't abandon your call. Jesus said, take up your cross. That's not a pleasant word. It it accompanies like dying to yourself, right? Suffering, the difficulties of the circumstances. But we can have joy in that, knowing that the gospel is advancing. Don't give up. Don't give up at CBC. Continue on. Don't let giving up rob your joy, even when it gets difficult. And I want to hone in on this, and, and I think from experience and just uh, maybe the Holy Spirit's work, hopefully the Holy Spirit's working on you, look at a few things that I think we can see very quickly. When we do or don't do them, joy comes from the advance of the gospel. Here they are, refusing to share Christ, or on the opposite side, sharing Christ. When you do that, like our brother here shared, you know what? I'm sure he was afraid. He didn't prepare, right? But the gospel wasn't preached, and he did it. And I talked to him briefly. Joy came. I have a story from my own life that um, kind of illustrates this as well. But I just want to point out before I share that, um, Nathan pointed this out, the workplace for you guys is where you're called, most of you, to share Christ. Those people, that is your real work to share Christ, to show his love to people, to advance the gospel with the people that you interact with daily. Some of you more than eight hours, most of you probably a day, in your workplace. Don't be afraid. That happened to me. It was a particularly frustrating day at VBS back in July. Just some things were not going as I wanted them to. And I was living in a place of discouragement. 
And so I went to drown my sorrows in a wonderful mango boba tea. I've stopped drinking Starbucks for various reasons. Now I'm drinking boba tea. Actually, without the boba, because I don't like it. Anyway, I went over to boba latte. And I ordered a drink, and I'm sitting there on my phone, just discouraged. And I hear, I'm at a bar table, one of those higher tables, and I hear over across from me this conversation start. And it's these two people who are probably hippies, I don't know. No offense to them. Some of you are in the hippie generation, just talking like that, right? And this guy was witnessing to them, but it was a false gospel. And he was talking about manifesting. That's kind of a big thing now in the general called new age spiritualism and he was saying you know what you can you can have everything you want you just manifest it you just like talk to the spirits i'm like oh my goodness i have to say something like i was under heavy conviction i have to share christ with these people but i didn't right away and i said i'm on my phone like trying to not listen to what's going on trying to ignore the holy spirit refusing to share the gospel and to my shame i walked out and I went into the white church van and sat there. And like, I got kind of emotional. I mean, you know what, God? I got to do this. And I knew because I lost all my joy. At that moment, when I was refusing to listen to the Holy Spirit's work in my heart to share, even in a weird situation, the gospel, I lost my joy completely. I was like, okay, Lord, I need to do this. So by God's amazing grace, I went in there and interrupted the conversation. I started something like this. I know this is rude, <laughs> and I don't normally do this, but I feel like God is wanting me to share with you about who Jesus Christ is. And it's crazy. I got to tell you, one of the craziest things that's ever happened in my life, that guy who was preaching a false gospel was also a DTS graduate. Can you believe it? And, and he, he, he started the conversation after I tried to share a little bit with these guys. He's like, well, you know, manifesting and prayer are the same thing. I was like, no, I don't know that because they're not. <laughs> and so I ended, he actually ended up misquoting a John passage. I had him read from the Gospel of John. These people actually heard about Jesus. And so at the end of the, as it was winding up, it was a very short conversation, maybe three, four minutes. He said, you know what you did is pretty rude. I'm like, yeah, you're right. And I wouldn't do this unless God was putting me under heavy conviction. I even said I walked out wanting to disobey. And then he's like, you know, God doesn't want us to like proselytize. And it was funny. The people he was trying to teach a false gospel to were like, well, then how do, man, how do people know about Jesus? Like, I'm not, I'm not, that is how they said it. I was like, amen. You know what? You, God has amazingly worked through a simple act of obedience, even disobedience. Just kidding. And I say that not to prop myself up, but to encourage you. Look, joy comes from those kind of things. If you refuse to do that, you'll lose your joy when you're prompted by the Holy Spirit to do things like that. And I've got a, a couple more here that I just want to briefly share with you, not to discourage you, but to encourage you that when we obey in these things, joy will come from the advance of the gospel, no matter what. Here's one. If when the Holy Spirit prompts you, refusing to serve will immediately crush your joy. And if you're sitting here at CBC wondering how you can serve... Maybe you haven't been around very long, okay. Otherwise, there's a lot of ways to serve. Even on Sunday mornings, let me encourage you, there are at least two routes of kids that need picked up that different people do every week that come from families who can't drive them. Even a simple thing like that. Is God putting in your heart? Has he been putting something on your heart that you've not walked in faith in and therefore lost your joy? Obey him. I can't tell you what that is. I'm sure some of you are like, yeah, I'm serving all the time. Great. But if you aren't, take it from the Lord 
from Philippians that if you're doing that out of fear or checking out because you're too old, you're going to lose your joy. I think maybe even more directly connected to the book of Philippians because of their joy in giving. If you refuse to give and God has put it on your heart to give to the church or to people in your life that are in need and you aren't doing that regularly, your, your joy will be crushed. When we, when we say, no, my money and my efforts and my talents are best used elsewhere, you will immediately lose your joy. And you'll live in a state of discouragement if you don't do that. A couple more here. Um, I call this one theological snobbery. I'm sure I've been guilty of it. But camping out on secondary or third or fourth or fifth level differences and being divided over that will crush your joy. Looking on Facebook, do we post messages that we know will be divisive three, four, five times, knowing that they're going to be angry about us doing that and then it's going to spiral? Oh, man, that will crush your joy. Stay on the gospel. Stay on what? What is best? Exalting Christ. Living for pleasure. I think this is kind of one of the themes of Philippians. This one thing I do. Keep on task. Don't abandon the gospel. You'll have joy in that. Playing excessive amounts of video games or sports or watching television or being on social media, entertaining yourself to death, as one person has said, will kill your joy. You'll try to get joy in those things, and you know what will happen? You'll be depressed. You cannot have joy in those things. It's a lie from Satan. And then finally, one here I think that I get directly from the text is, it says rivalry. That was a very convicting one for me. Do we gossip or do we do things motivated by rivalry to be better than someone else, to lift up ourselves? When we do that, we'll crush the joy that comes from the advance of the gospel. But when we live in unity and harmony with one another because we're humble, we'll have joy. When we go out and share Christ, we'll have the joy that comes immediately from obedience. When we're serving with other people, no matter how hard it is, we'll have joy. When we're working together to exalt Christ in our lives, whether in the library, homeschooling, as a banker, whatever it is, for the cause of Christ, we will have joy. With the right foundation... And when we approve what is best, we will be able to rejoice in the advance of the gospel no matter what and avoid those pitfalls to our joy. Will you stand firm this week by rejoicing in the advance of the gospel no matter what? That's, I believe, what God would want us to do. Let me pray for you, and then we can go eat. I'll go ahead and pray for the food as well. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church that has just been such a blessing to so many. I know, me too. And, and the joy of the Lord is present here. Let us continue in that joy, Lord, um, preaching Christ, advancing the gospel in faith and obedience to, to him because he's worth it. It's worth it. Lord, you are worth it. And we do love you, Lord Jesus. Just pray that you would bless the food and our fellowship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.